tonight, as Pastor Bill said, we are continuing in our study in Ephesians. And so I would ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be continuing where he left off last week. As you know, if you were here last week, if not, we'll catch you up to speed here. Ephesians chapter 1, the first 14 verses, or well, actually verse 3 through 14, is, is one continuous run-on sentence in the Greek, which makes it extremely easy uh, to interpret and translate and, and whatnot, uh, not really. Uh, it, can, it can make it a little complex at times, uh, but it has some glorious truths in there, and the way we're looking at it over this series is that it's broken up into three sections. Each section is showing the various works of each person of the Trinity. The first uh, three verses, verses 3 through 6, talks about how the Father has purposed salvation. What we're looking at tonight, verses 7 through 12, speaks of how Christ accomplished salvation, and then verses 13 and 14 focuses on the Spirit applying salvation. And so that's the, that's the sections that this passage is broken up into. And, and as I said tonight, we're going to look at the, the work of Christ. As, as we sang those songs, the first set, you, you notice that they are very focused on Christ and the work he's done. And, and you know, and the, the last song in particular is one that just stirs my heart when we sing it. it it's hard to sing that song and not, not rejoice. But at the same time, it's hard to sing that song and not weep when you think of what Christ has done. It's kind of a song that it, at different moments as we sing it, it, it evokes a different emotion just because of what you think about when you think upon the work that Christ has done on the cross. And, and we'll, we'll close the night with three songs focused again on Christ in response to the word. I told Jeff earlier, he said, just let me know if we're going to sing them or not. And I said, if we preach until 10 o'clock, we're still going to sing those songs. So um, I, I won't preach until 10. It'll be 9. Um, but... Uh, but we will sing those songs because beautiful songs in response to our word tonight. Before we get into the text tonight, I, I want to take a, a sidestep and look at what has come to be known as in sociology and a lot of, a lot of circles of education of, of theologians and whatnot of what they would say right now is probably the leading religion in America. Uh, Pastor Bill had actually talked about it maybe two months ago briefly it's, it's what Christian Smith, he's a sociologist from Notre Dame, uh, he, he termed it moralistic therapeutic deism. It's not an official religion that you would go to a moralistic therapeutic deist church. Uh, there's no churches that, but, but he did in a study in the National Study of Youth and Religion, he found that most people in America would, would identify with the beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism. So I want to explain to you very quickly tonight what he's talking about in that, and I want to show you how the, the text that we're looking at tonight in relation to Christ absolutely destroys this, because this is important. As you go and you engage the culture that we live in, you need to know how the gospel destroys the false gospels, and so we want to look at that. We want to look at how the grace of God stands in contrast to what the majority of people that, that surround us believe. The first point is, he says it's moralistic. And by this, what he means is that the majority of people believe that God just wants people to be good and nice and fair, just like every other religion and Christianity included teaches. So as long as you're nice to one another, as long as you're good, that you're a, you're a, a kind-hearted person, as long as you're pretty moral, then, then you're good to go. You're, you're living life, you're a good person, and, and people are happy with you. Uh, they would say that good people go to heaven when they die. What, what gets you to heaven? Well, I've been pretty good, and they would be okay with that. We 
a lot of times, here's how it manifests itself in parents. We're satisfied when our kids are good. If they're good kids that sit attentively in the service and they don't make a lot of noise and they don't embarrass us in front of others, that all those things, and you know, think about all the, the, the big no-nos as a teenager. If they stay away from those, then, then they're good kids and we're good to go. We're happy with that. We're content with that. The person working beside us, we become content to know, oh, they're a good person, they're nice, and we don't worry about the gospel in their life because we see them as a good person. So, so a lot of people would say, as long as people are moral, I'm okay with that. As long as I'm moral, I'm good to go. I'm, I'm happy, I'm okay. God's okay with me. The second is that it's therapeutic. Most people would look at the goal of life being, as being happy and, and feeling good about yourself. So, so I just want to go somewhere, and I want to be, I, I be fed this, this message that's going to make me feel good. And, and you see that all across our nation in, in churches where this has crept into the church, where people will go just in order to feel good. They want to hear a message that tickles their ear, just as Paul warned Timothy of. They want to hear something that's going to make their ear feel good. And the lie is this, is that if, if something doesn't make you happy, or you don't feel good about doing it, then it must not be from God. And so we have people, even in our churches, that would say, you know, if this is going to be hard or it's not going to be something I'm happy doing, then I guess God doesn't want me to do it. And so they deny doing things that it could even be a a clear teaching of Scripture. But they'll deny that because it doesn't make them happy. It doesn't make them feel good. And what happens is they become, it kind of lulls us to sleep. It it relaxes us and and makes us think that, you know what, we're, we're okay. But we don't need Christ. We, we really don't have a need. We're, we're fine. I feel good. I feel happy. I said, I don't need Christ. I'm not in need of salvation because I feel good. I feel good about myself. The, the third point, well, let me back up and say this. On that note, this is something we need to realize because we live in a culture that, that just shoves self-esteem down our throats, right? A, a high self-esteem can be a hindrance to the gospel. We need to realize that, that a high self-esteem can hinder the gospel. Why? Because we don't think we need Christ. We've got all we need in ourselves. And so, so I'm good. I, I, I can depend on myself because, because I just, I've been built up and I've been great. You don't need You're good. You can do anything you, you set your mind to. I give you a high self-esteem. And it can be a hindrance. It can be a hindrance. We don't need to verbally abuse one another, but we do need to be honest with our condition. The last point of moralistic therapeutic deism is this, is, is deism. That, that God is not intimately involved in our lives. He's some, some distant watchmaker. And, and he can come along. He's almost like Santa Claus. He, he can come along and he can help me if I need. If, I, if I'm really in a bind, if I really need some help, he can come help me when I'm comfortable, when I want him to. Okay, he, he's, he's distant. And here, here's an important point with this. What does that word acknowledge? If someone's moralistic, therapeutic, deist, what does that acknowledge about their belief about God? Does he exist or not? They would say he exists. Christian Smith found that when they studied people across America, primarily teenagers and young adults, and they've continued this study, they're still looking at the results of it. When they found this, they found that it wasn't the majority of people walking around saying, I'm an atheist, I don't believe God exists. They believe God exists, they just don't believe in the God of the Bible. They believe he's a distant God that's, that's out there. And they, they, so they would walk around thinking, well, I can keep my sins to myself. I can hide my sins. It doesn't really matter. As long as it doesn't hurt Jeff, then everybody's good. 
as long as it doesn't hurt you, I'm good. Because I can hide it. And so, so people are content, again, where they are. How does this impact us? One, big time in evangelism, we, we can't accept the fact that someone says, oh, I believe in God. Okay, well, good, great. We, we can't stop there and accept that because just because someone says, I believe in God, does not mean that they believe in the one true God of the Bible. There's a lot of people walking around that would say, oh, yeah, I believe in God, but it's not the God of Scripture. So moralistic therapeutic deism is, is what Paul in Galatians 6 would call a different gospel. It's a different gospel that he says for those who preach it should be accursed. It's a different gospel. Why? Because it's a distortion of the true gospel message. And tonight we're going to look over, if, you want to, if you're not in Ephesians 1, go ahead and turn there. We're going to look here and we're going to see that Ephesians 1 clearly reminds us of the true gospel. We're going to read the whole section tonight, beginning in verse 3, and then we'll study verses 7 through 12. Beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. I, I want us to look at five points tonight out of this section in verses 7 through 12 that, that we need to pull from and understand as we, as we move through this passage. The first is in verse 6. Paul says, in him, or verse 7, I'm sorry, in him we have redemption through his blood. In verse 7, in him refers back to the beloved. We talked earlier that this section is concerning Christ. It's concerning the Christ that, or the work that Christ did to accomplish our salvation. It was Jesus who carried out the plan that the Father purposed. Bill talked about that last week, that, that God had an intentional plan that he purposed beforehand, before the foundations of the world. He set this plan in place, and it's Christ who has carried that plan out. It's Christ who has accomplished what the Father set in motion. It's, it's, it's here in Christ. What, what does this mean? It means that we are made God's people through the work of Christ. We are redeemed. We are restored. We are forgiven through the work of Christ. In Christ alone. It's where the reformers got their cry. One of the five solas. Solus Christus. Christ alone. It's been Christ alone. There is no other. There's no other works that accomplish salvation. He alone is able 
to accomplish salvation because he alone was the sinless son of God, the lamb without blemish. There's no salvation apart from him. Acts 4.12, there's no no other name under heaven by which we must be saved but the name of Christ. John 14, I am the way, the truth, the life. It's, It's verses that we know that we're very familiar with. There's no one who comes to the Father except through who? Christ. We're familiar with those verses. If you've grown up in the church, if you read Scripture, these are prominent passages that we we build our faith upon. That that Christ alone has accomplished salvation. In Christ alone is redemption found. And this, this, (laughs) it just destroys deism. When you think about deism, what, what is the thought of deism that God is where? He's far away. He's out there, right? And so according to the studies, according to what everybody's finding out, is that the majority of people in our country would say that God is distant. Why are, we're comfortable with that. Why are we comfortable with that? Because if, if he's distant, it doesn't matter how I live. There's no one that's really going to dictate the things I do, the places I go, how I live my life. Because if God's out there, there's a little bit of comfort in there knowing, okay, there's a God there. But, but there's not, he's not so close that it kind of it doesn't crimp my style. I, I can be comfortable with God being far away. This is the transcendence of God. They're okay with that. But what does the coming of Christ show us? How did Christ accomplish redemption, accomplish salvation? How did he do it? Emmanuel, God with us. John 1, what does he do? The word became flesh the word became flesh he, he came and dwelt among us it's the, the eminence of christ christ is here christ is with us christ is present he, he's not a distant god who stayed far away that that, that this watchmaker that, that got everything going and and set it aside and said okay take care of yourself oh you've got yourself in a bind now i hope you can fix it I hope you can work your way out of it. No, he, he, he's a God who is present. He's a God that walks among his people. He's a God that knew we couldn't fix it. The God that planned and purposed before the foundation of the world. That in our sin, he would come and live a perfect life and die an innocent death. Why? To take our blame. To take our sins upon him. He's a God who is near. So when someone looks at you and says, yeah, I, you know, I believe in God. I believe in God. I just, he's just probably out there. Then you say, no, no, Scripture teaches that it's in Christ that we have salvation. Scripture teaches that Christ came and he lived and he died and he rose again. Christ is here, God with us. Christ destroys deism. The second point, in verse 7 again, we're going to do a lot in verse 7 and then fly through the rest. The second point in verse 7 is this, is that salvation was accomplished through what? Through redemption. Redemption. What does verse 7 says? It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us. In Christ we have redemption through his blood. If this is not anti-therapeutic, I don't know what is. 
The, the fact that Christ came and redeemed us tells us what? It doesn't tell us that, hey, you need a good positive self-esteem. That's great. It tells us, you know what? You were messed up and you couldn't fix yourself. I mean, listen, Psalm 14, 2-3, The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Jesus said in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is the slave to sin. Romans 5, 12, or 12, we're taught, therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Because what? Because all sinned. Hebrews 9, 22, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and were by nature children of wrath. We were dead. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Christ did not redeem us because we needed to feel better about ourselves. He redeemed us because we were blind, we were forsaken, we were bound, we were lost, we were helpless, we were dead in sin. He redeemed us because we could not redeem ourselves. We could not. It it destroys the whole idea of therapy. It destroys it. Because it doesn't matter how good you feel about yourself, you're still in need of Christ. So no matter how great you feel tonight, if you have not come to a point where you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, feeling good about yourself is not going to help. The only thing that can help you and alleviate your lost condition is the saving grace of Jesus Christ. In Christ alone. This word redemption is actually, it's made up, it's a compound word. It's made up of two Greek words. It's apolutrosis. The the first one, the the ending actually is lutro, meaning ransom. The first, apo, meaning away from. It is to, to ransom away from, to deliver, to set free, to loose. This is important. There's two other words for redemption used in the New Testament. And they, they actually are used, and they're used in, in common Greek for, for buying or purchasing. And, and that's, that's, the, that's pretty much the extent of their meaning, that ransom, to buy, to purchase. This word here means to release from captivity. From captivity. So, so when you hear Christ say, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin, this is where redemption comes in. Not only are we freed, but we're freed from bondage. Not only have we been purchased, but we're purchased and set free. We're set free. John John 8, Christ says you will know the truth, and the truth will what? The truth will set you free. Praise God. Praise God. We are set free in Christ. We're bought out of slavery by what? By the blood of Christ. He says right there, redemption through his blood. Listen again, Hebrews 9.22, we read it a moment ago. All things are cleansed with what? With blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness. But what has Christ done? He has bought us out of slavery and set us free by his blood. It's the truth that led Charles Wesley to rejoice. I think this is now my favorite hymn. I I can't think of a hymn I love more than this one by Charles Wesley. 
Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Amazing love. How can it be? How can it be that when Christ redeemed you, the chains that shackled you, the bondage of sin broke loose, broke loose, and you were set free in Christ, free, free to live in Christ. That next phrase, the forgiveness, he says we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our grace. The forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses. This is the equivalent. The way it's set up there is the equivalent of redemption. So those who have been redeemed are forgiven. If you have been redeemed, you are forgiven. It's the nature of our redemption. We are those who are forgiven. If you are a Christian, you are forgiven. That's who you are. That's where you stand. You stand forgiven. And forgiveness is much more than any therapy or any psychotherapy, psychology, anything you want to talk about, any self-esteem talks, forgiveness is much more than any of them can ever offer. Forgiveness by God, when you're justified in the sight of God, when you're declared innocent, is final. It's final. When you are looked upon in the clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you stand forgiven. You're not perfect. You're still going to mess up. And if you rely on self-esteem, what's going to happen? You'll be back on the floor. But when we mess up, what do we rely on? We rely on the grace of God. We rely on the work of Christ that He has forgiven us. The third thing we want to catch tonight is in verse 6 through 8. Redemption is the result of God's grace. It's the result of God's grace. Again, this completely violates the thinking of moralistic therapeutic deism. How? Because grace is anti-moralistic. There's a lot of really nice moral people that are in hell right now. Morality gets you nowhere. Nowhere. That's what grace reminds us is that, that morality does nothing. Man's deeds do not achieve the righteousness of God. They never have and they never will. There's no way. There's no way. Why is moralistic therapeutic deism a false gospel? Because it does not acknowledge the grace of God. If you fail to acknowledge the grace of God, then you fail to confess and believe the gospel. The gospel cannot be without the grace of God. It can't. Look at, look at how grace frames redemption in this passage. Look in verse 6. To the praise of His glory, of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. And then again, what does He lavish on us? The riches of His grace. So nestled in, in between all this, redemption is framed by what? It's framed by God's grace. The purpose of salvation was God's, the glory of God's grace. We have redemption, what? According to the riches of His grace. God's grace is the cause of redemption. We can't stake any claim on it. 
There's no part of my redemption that I can say, yep, that was my role. I did it. I didn't do it. It was God's grace that brought it about. It was God's grace that saved me. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is very clear in that. While we were yet sinners, what did Christ do? Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Listen, if you want your life to demonstrate the gospel, if you want your life to proclaim the gospel so that when your words go forth and you verbally share the gospel, which, by the way, the two have to go hand in hand, if you want your actions to back up what your words say when you share the gospel, then make it a practice to live out Romans 5.8. That those who hate you and revile you and spit in your face and wrong you and cheat you and steal from you, sacrificially love those people. When you approach those people and share the gospel, they will have no argument to make. Because of the demonstration of God's grace that you've shown them. And look at how God's grace is described in verse 7 and 8. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. The riches of his grace. What does it say? It says according to. Now, consider this. Consider that, that you were broke, you needed some gas money, and you happened to see Bill Gates walking down the streets of Somerset. And you said, listen, Bill, good old buddy, old pal, I need... I need some gas. Could you spare me a dollar? Five dollars, maybe ten. And he gives you five bucks. Says, here you go. Five bucks. This will get you where you need to go. Now, he's giving you out of his wealth, right? He's giving you from what he has, right? Okay? A generous gift. He's give, he didn't have to give you anything. Great. We'll pat Bill on the back and say, Bill, thank you. We appreciate you and, and all that you do to mess up our computers and make, them, make us dependent upon you. Okay? Now, you see the difference. That's giving from his wealth. Now, how would it be if he gave according to his wealth? What would the difference be? <laughs> People are, ching, ching. Yeah, Phyllis is ready, right? The quirky quilter is ready to get some nice quilts. Okay, so, so here we go. If, if he gives according to his riches, then, then he's going to go, hey, you know what? I'll tell you what. Just leave your car there. I'll buy you the nicest car at Outen Blakely, and you can have it. How about that? Or I'll tell you what, here, I'll just give you a credit card, and you never have to buy gas again. He's given according to his riches. His riches are, are astronomical. I don't even know where it is, but he's given according to them. God doesn't just give from his grace. He, he gives according to the riches of his grace. He lavishes it upon us he pours it out upon us. he doesn't just sprinkle a little bit and go here here's you just a little grace he pours it out on us our cups are overflowing overflowing it is it is a fire hydrant blowing us backwards of his grace He's, he lavishes it on it paul elsewhere in ephesians 3 8 he says that he describes the gospel as the riches of christ the gospel message just the riches of christ in colossians 1 he describes the riches of of the glory of this mystery of Christ indwelling the believer. The riches of the glory of this mystery. Do we think upon that? Do we think upon our salvation as the riches of the gospel? This salvation that, that, it, that Peter said the angels long to look into. They, they have no, they, they, they can't fathom it. They, they want to know it. They want to see what we've experienced. They want to know it. The riches of God's grace. 
We know it. He's lavished it upon us. Do we consider it a rich blessing? Or is it just an old hat that we come and hear about from church? Number four, God has revealed the mystery of his will to us. Verses 8 through 10. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fulfillment, the fullness of the times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. In, in Scripture, when it says mystery, it simply refers to something that's been made known that in times past was unknown. So, so something that God has revealed and He's made known. Look at, just notice with me, verse 9. If you look back at verse 5. Verse 5, we studied last week, says, talking about God the Father, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise and glory of His grace. Look at, these, these verses mirror themselves. The, the Father predetermined to make His will known. He's predetermined to make his will known. He took great pleasure in doing so. And it was planned in Christ. He delights in doing and carrying out his will. He delights in it. So what is the mystery? The mystery is the summing up of all things. That all things will be brought back into order once again. All things will be reconciled. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. talks about it would be in the Father's good pleasure to reconcile all things to himself. In Christ, all things to himself. Philippians 2.10 tells us that one day every knee will bow on heaven and earth. Either willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. All things will be brought back into their proper place. Sin is torn a hole, is brought separation and estrangement, but God will bring things back. He will reconcile all things. Through what? Through Christ. Through Christ, the work of Christ. This is the mystery that, that once was not known, but is now known. We know this. We stand knowing this. Could you imagine the treasure if you looked at Moses and you said, Hey, Moses, let me let you read Revelation. Let me let you read that. I mean, Moses never had Revelation. None of those guys did. Look at all the, all the saints of the Old Testament. They didn't have the blessing and the privilege of reading Revelation and going, Huh? But knowing that following that, huh, is the truth and the understanding that the message of Revelation is that God has already won the victory. The victory is His. It's His. We have no fear. God is bringing back everything. He's reconciling everything back together in Christ. Everything. The mystery has been revealed. Finally, number five, in verse 11 and 12. Christ's work has brought about a glorious inheritance. His work has brought about a glorious inheritance. In Him, verse 11, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. Notice the similarities here in verses 4 and 6. You can just kind of Look, I'm going to tell them to you here. Look at, look at verse 4 through 6, and then look at these, this passage. In verse 4, we're chosen in Christ. In verse 11, we're given inheritance in Christ. In verse 5, we're predestined to adoption. In verse 11, 
were predestined as heirs. In verse 5, it's according to God's will. In verse 11, it's according to God's will. In verse 6, what's the end? To the praise of the glory of His grace. In verse 12, it's to the praise of His glory. And you'll never believe how verse 14 concludes. To the praise of His glory. This inheritance has been a part of God's plan from the beginning. From the beginning, He purposed this. He predestined. He predestined us as heirs. I, I cannot, I, I'll be honest with you, I cannot wrap my mind around that. I can't. That, that confuses me. When I thought this week, well, how do I explain this? I don't know exactly. I don't. Maybe Bill can. <laughs> That's next week. Bill will take care of that. I don't know. But for time's sake, let's look at this tonight as we close. Let's look at verse 11 where he says this. He makes a statement. He says, we have obtained an inheritance. The, the, here, here's the thing. is This can be translated in two ways. And both are grammatically correct. I, I looked at all kinds of scholars. Some say, well, it could be this, it could be that. They, they tend to go with the way the New American Standard translates it, but there's a good argument for either. And it's actually biblically accurate. So listen, here's the two ways that this can be interpreted. The first way is this. That, that statement, we have obtained an inheritance, can also be translated as we were made an inheritance. We were made an inheritance. That, that would mean that we are God's inheritance. He, his prized possession. His prized possession. It, listen to Malachi 3.17. God says, and they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession. Or Isaiah 43, 1. Do not fear, I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. You are mine. Do not fear. You're mine, God says. That we're God's prized possession. We are his portion and his delight. 1 Peter 1, 9 calls us God's own possession. Now, now just think for a moment. The value that that puts on you in the sight of God. That, that gives you tremendous value if God looks at you and says, the redeemed, the redeemed, they're my prized possession in whom I delight. I call them my own. And guess what? Don't fear. Don't fear. I've redeemed you. I called you my name. You are mine. Wow. Wow. Most commentators would fall to the second one. Although that one is certainly biblically accurate and it can be translated that way. The second option is the way it is in the New American Standard. It says that we have obtained an inheritance. This, this talks of God blessing us with an inheritance as his people. I, I just, at either option, I stand amazed at God's grace. I, I just stand amazed at God's grace. To consider that God has given me an inheritance. I, I can't fathom that. Listen to, to Romans 8, verses uh, 15 to 17. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. 
I don't know what to say to that. I mean, how do you respond to that? How, how do you respond to that knowing the truths that we talked about earlier from, from Psalm 14 and Romans 5 and Romans 3 and, and, and John 8 and, and all these truths about who we are? We look at who we are. How do you respond to the fact that before the foundation of the world, God predestined us as heirs? And we have an inheritance in Christ. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to respond, but not in worship. I, I don't know how to respond, but, but saying, God, here am I. Take me. Take me. Here, here's all of me. Take me. Use me. Use me. How can we hold back? How can we not tell people when they're, when they're, when they're sinking in moralism, in therapy, and an idea of some distant, remote God? How can we not share with them the grace that is in the gospel? I don't know. I don't know. I want to leave you with this. The late B.B. Warfield gave an opening address to Princeton Theological Seminary on the subject of redemption. And, and I want you to hear this tonight. He said, There's no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer, because it is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance, not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that he paid a mighty price for it. Towards the end of the message, he started that way. Towards the end of the message, he stepped back and, and kind of grieved. And, and he said, you know, unfortunately, the case isn't so anymore. And I would contend that it's losing its meaning in our day as well, perhaps more so. This is how he concluded his address to the students. It's a sad thing to see words like these die, referring to redemption. And I hope you will determine that, God helping you, you will not let them die thus. If any care on your part can preserve them in life and vigor, but the dying of the words is not the saddest thing which we see here. The saddest thing is the dying out of the hearts of men of the things for which the words stand. The real thing for you to settle in your minds, therefore, is whether Christ is truly a redeemer to you and whether you find an actual redemption in him. Do you realize that Christ is your ransomer and has actually shed his blood for you as your ransom? Do you realize that your salvation has been bought, bought at a tremendous price, at the price of nothing less precious than blood, and that, the blood of Christ, the Holy One of God? Or go a step further, do you realize that this Christ who has thus shed his blood for you is himself your God? Jeff and the musicians are going to come up tonight. As we close in response to the work of Christ, my prayer is that, that as B.B. Warfield shared, that, that we would not think lightly of redemption, that, that we would not think lightly of the work that Christ did on the cross, and that, that we would consider, is Christ my Redeemer? Is He my Redeemer?
Because the reality is there's sure to be people sitting in this sanctuary tonight who have not trusted Christ for salvation. And so our prayer tonight is, is that we would think deeply of redemption. That we would respond in the only way I know how is to offer our hearts and our minds and our voices in worship. And that we would go from here offering our lives in worship. And I pray that if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, that you would speak to me or one of the pastors here and that you would submit your life to the Lordship of Christ and know Him as your Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight in praise of your plan that you purposed long before the foundation of the world to redeem us sinners as we are. And Lord Jesus, we worship you for the salvation that you've accomplished. God, it's nothing that we have done. Nothing that we have done, but it is all of you. God, thank you for your grace. We stand amazed at your grace. How can it be that you, oh God, would die for us? How can it be? We stand now to praise you because all we have is you. Amen.